Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. I got another exciting episode for you today. I think I say that every week, but it is because every week it is exciting for me. With me today, I have Danny Heinsen. Danny has a fantastic story. He has worked with some of the sport's biggest names, including Derek Jeter, uh, the basketball superstar Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who has a fantastic story, if you go into that detail, as well as the New York Yankees. However, Danny is really not here to talk about all these sports wonder stars and wonderkins and that job, but to talk about his particular story. He's got a wonderful story about health, about really coming back from adversity, and one that we can all learn from. Danny, great to have you on the show today. Glad to be here, Kevin. Thank you very much. All right. Well, you know, I kind of gave away a little bit there in the intro, but could you tell us some about your background? Yeah, more, more or less, uh, I would say that the majority of my life has uh, revolved around sports is how I kind of express my lifestyle. Um, as a uh, growing up, I always wanted to be a, a professional baseball player and uh, got into college, was really active in intramural sports. And um, currently, over the past 12 years, I've been highly involved in endurance sports, such as triathlons and training for marathons. So that's the, the active side of of who I am. Uh, I have also made a name for a startup company back in 2002 called Access Pass and Design. And um, we started out designing and manufacturing backstage passes for the concert touring industry. And in about 2005, I jumped in there and I started spearheading uh, all the initiatives and growth for uh, the major uh, sports market. So as you mentioned, we do work with the New York Yankees, with the Baltimore Ravens, the uh, NCAA, uh, roughly about 50 uh, NCAA Division One, Division Two schools, um, just to name a few. And uh, let's see, I also run a foundation. It's a scholarship fund for young adult cancer survivors, and I'm actually just embarking on a career in uh, in speaking as well. All right, so um, very interesting background there. You know, uh, working with a lot of different people. Now, I got to ask you though. Were you always involved with philanthropy? You said you were always involved with sports, but setting up a foundation is not necessarily something that people just do out of the blue. Is there a story there? There, there is a story. It's, it's kind of a long story. Um, you know, I, I'll just let the cat out of the bag right now. I was actually diagnosed with a brain tumor the size of a racquetball upon graduating college in, in May of 1999. And it was a primary central nervous system lymphoma type of cancer that originates in the brain where it was reported at the time there was a uh, five-year survival rate. So, you know, just imagine 23 years old, graduate college, okay, you have a brain tumor. Uh, Well, long story short, um, after three craniotomies, after they removed the racquetball out of my head, um, at a conclusive diagnosis, at a conclusive operation at the UCLA where it was uh, diagnosed as uh, brain cancer. So that's kind of how my life, tra- after, after treatment, my life transcended into, a, um, I guess, a lifestyle of, uh, of, of perseverance and really fighting for everything 
from that point forward. Well, what would you say you were like before you had that diagnosis of cancer? You know, just on a normal day to day, what your views and attitudes were? Uh, I, I was always, I've always been very goal oriented. So if there's ever something I never wanted to do, I just kind of put it out there and just started making connections and meeting people within that particular space. And, um, you know, just kind of building my way from there. But then after after cancer, um, it, it, you know, there's a lot of parallels with uh, going through cancer and chemotherapy because it takes a lot of endurance. It takes a lot of support from friends and family. Um, a lot of the, I think a lot of universal principles, you know, apply when you're going through that kind of trying time where it is a, a point to where you come face to face with your mortality and you can think, yeah, you know what, this this could be it. How much time do I have left? So as far as the active lifestyle goes, I mean, it just, it, as far as survivorship goes, it, it was really important for me to, to maintain that active lifestyle so I could get as far away from it as I could. Could you kind of take us back to that moment in time uh, when you were first diagnosed? And, and really what I want to know is, how did they diagnose it? What were the symptoms that you had that sort of led you to this? You know, what was your life like at the time before you had cancer? Well, I was uh, in my, let's see, I was on the five-year college plan, and yeah, I had my fair share of good times during college. I, I don't feel like my lifestyle was a whole lot different than, than anyone else's, but two weeks before college graduation, I, uh, I woke up one morning and I had this headache, and I thought it was maybe just like a migraine and uh, just kind of blew it off. I'd be okay in the morning, but every morning after that, I woke up with the same headache, and... I noticed something was very wrong one evening when I was running the base pass in a softball game. It felt like as if a river rock was uh, literally sinking and pounding deeper into my skull. And and it was just almost brought me down to my knees. So still being the ignorant college kid that I was, I didn't think it was anything that was going to last for too long. Um, but I did go see a couple doctors and, you know, they said, uh, oh, you know, you're probably just stress because of, because of finals, you're going to graduate and you're excited to go to Europe. Um, and I was supposed to go to Europe two days after college graduation. Um, but then I graduated on a Sunday and then on uh, Monday, the headaches were worse than ever. So my, uh, my dad took me to the ER at St. Mary's and after two and a half hours of testing, I meet him in the waiting room and he says, doesn't look like you're going to Europe. The doctors think you have a tumor. So um, that's how that went. And what did you struggle with right after? I mean, that you, you, you're 23 at the time. Mm -hmm. Okay, going to Europe, and the first thing you you hear is you're going with a headache, and you're coming out with a new diagnosis. What were you struggling with then? <laughs> well, the first thing that went through my head was, uh, "There goes Europe." I mean, like literally, that's <laughs> what I that's what I said out loud, or like in in my head. Um, and it's really. Unbe unbelievable it's like you can't even fathom such a thing at, at 23 when you kind of feel like you're on top of the world and uh, one thing I I realized right away was how fortunate I was um, to have this community that um, I had built you know within you know you and I been fraternity brothers and being involved on campus and and uh, all that good stuff I, I just realized like all the pouring love and support that came in during that time was just like that you realize right away the important things in life, um, you know, and then like just with the whole medical thing, like 
you have to get used to a whole new vocabulary. Um, it's, it's actually just taking another college curriculum in itself, um, like a mini term or something like that. And, um, you know, but this is, this is your life, you know, and you have to, I mean, all of a sudden you're, you have to entrust the whole medical system and rely on them to, to, uh, to hope, you know, to make the, make the best of things and keep you alive and give you a long lasting life. So, um, you know, I had seizure complications, uh, you know, my, after my second, after my first craniotomy, they, they patched me back up and then they, I, they called it code blue on me because I, I wouldn't wake up. And, um, you know, so what they did is they took away that, that part of my skull indefinitely because of all the intracranial pressure that was building up, which was what gave me the headaches in the first place. So, um, the next two and a half months later, I would go down to UCLA with a conclusive operation. And it was that at that point that they would fix the cranial defect. And, uh, at the time, you know, being 23, I was still a little, I was still an arrogant college kid, but, um, and I actually thought I was done with the ordeal. And then when I went to go see my oncologist in Reno, he told me, okay, you have primary central nervous system lymphoma. And uh, it didn't really sound that threatening to begin with. And then I asked him, so what is that cancer? And he said, you know, just kind of took a step back and nodded his head. And that's, that's really when it became, um, you know, real. That was a real, a low point for me. Um, you know, how much time do I have? So then obviously, you know, going through chemotherapy and, uh, all that stuff, um, you know, you really learn that you have to take care of your body, even going through treatment, you have to, you can't eat just anything, obviously, because all the, the, the chemo chemicals that are going through your body, but, um, you, you kind of learn that, yeah, you do need to take care of yourself no matter what's, what type of health you're in. I guess that's a way into the question. Uh, but I mean, after, even after treatment, um, I, I would say that the first year and year and a half after treatment was probably just as difficult as going through treatment itself because nobody really teaches you how to, uh, how to live after cancer that people don't, it's just like a lot of, there's like a lot of parallels I found between fighting cancer and, you know, soldiers coming back from, war and you know fighting for their country is that there are a lot of um, post-traumatic effects that that happen and, um, you know there needs to be uh, a community to help you help you through that and that was one of the things that there wasn't a community back there back then um, so I, I you know I have a lot to uh, attribute and to be grateful for because of organizations such as the uh, team and training with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And, uh, it was great with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. You know, they, they gave us a little uh, a stipend um, for kind of the cost of living because, you know, flying up to Portland every month, um, you know, that money helped pay for, for hotel and all that stuff. Um, but, I mean, I mean, just in any, any aspect of society, you know, from my own personal experience, I mean, there's a lot of gaps in the whole system that need to be, that needs to be bridged, and we have a we have a long way to go. Uh, yeah. So you, it was interesting because you mentioned um, the experience that soldiers have when they're coming back, and and a lot of that has to do with reintegration because you are in a different environment. 
you come from a, uh, you know, a war zone is a very close, intimate um, place with well-defined roles and um, an extraordinarily stressful environment for, for uh, anybody that's been in one. And then they come back and the roles have changed significantly. And a lot of times what soldiers will say is they just don't know where they fit in anymore. They don't know how to behave. They don't know how to act. Could you um, provide some of those parallels with, with when you were going through the, the, your chemotherapy? Well, I mean, there was a time when, you know, once I got into the routine after the, the third month or so, um, because once you get into it, you really have to start dealing with this whole new lifestyle of taking medications. And, uh, I mean, for me, once I kind of got in the groove, I, I, I really set a routine um, because when I had my, my seizure, um, that first initial seizure, I mean, I lost a lot of my motor skills. I slurred my words when I spoke. All I right. where, where was the seizure occurring? We, we missed that somewhere. When did you have the seizure? Uh, when I, okay, so after the, the first craniotomy, um, when they when they patched me back up, I, I, I passed out and I, I wouldn't wake up. So um, that they removed the temporary, that's why they temporary, temporarily removed my, my skull flap at the time because of the excessive swelling. Um, so did you seize while you were unconscious? Is that basically what happened? Okay. I, I did. Yep. Okay. Well, actually, I don't remember. I think I was, uh, from what I was told, I was talking to my, my family and my doctors and that's when I passed out and I wouldn't wake up. Mm -hmm. So then they, they did, that was the second operation. And, um, uh, can you, can you take me back to the question? I kind of lose track sometimes. No, no, you're good. You're good. I was, I was uh, just wondering how that fit in. And we were talking about basically reintegration after chemotherapy. So yeah, I guess the way I would put it is, um, and it, this is because we kind of jumped around just a tad here. And it sounds like when you first had the diagnosis, they told you it was a mass, like a, a large something in your head that you did not know it was cancer at that time. I think a lot of it was, was denial and just okay. being an American college kid. Okay. Uh, even though I heard the word lymphoma, no one ever told me lymphoma was cancer, so I had no reason to believe that I had cancer. Mm -hmm. Now, that, that makes sense. And, and I, I want to tie that in with something else that you said earlier, where you said a lot of it when you got engaged in the medical system was basically learning a new language, like learning a whole new uh, uh, you know, subject matter practically in college, because I think that's something that we forget at times. And we certainly do as medical uh, providers and physicians. It took me a long time to realize is that what we learn in, when we're in medical school is we're essentially learning a different language. And one of the hardest things that people have and doctors have is that we forget that people are not communicating. And so from your standpoint, when you know you get this diagnosis, you hear a word, you think you, you understand, or maybe you just kind of, again, you're, you're kind of overwhelmed at the time, 23 years old, that you don't really know what that means have you changed since then have you um I, I guess do you ask for clarification more now do you ask more questions do you do you uh you know even if if, if you think it may be a silly question do you just say hey you know what i want to make sure i understand what it is that you're talking about was this this you know is this what you mean i do i i actually do a lot of uh repeating and rephrasing so just like, you know, so if I understand you correctly, you know, this is what you said, just to confirm. I mean, I mean as being, being a sales guy and in marketing everything, I mean, 
communication is extremely important. And over time, I think my neurons just kind of learn to connect. Um, and the part of my struggle was for like the longest time is the, uh, the tumor was growing into my the eloquent part of my brain that, you know, allows for functionality of, of speech and, and smell and spatial reasoning. And um, gosh, I mean, it, it took me years to kind of get back on track. I mean, one of the things when I have my neuropsychological exams is um, I rank really high in like visual spacing, but uh, I rank extremely low in my ability to, to comprehend and uh, and uh, uh, list, absorb, absorb speech and kind of regurgitate it back into a conversation. Um, that was, that was a real big struggle for me. And I think that that's definitely, um, one of the ramifications of, of that, that, that head trauma. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I definitely, you know, I, I had, I think I had, um, I had a case of, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder that I didn't really know how to deal with. And, you know, I, eventually I, I, I learned to deal with it through, uh, through an endurance sports because I could, I knew I could just keep going forward with that. <laughs> Was there a sense of control then that you gained with endurance sports, like training for them? That was an aspect that you really had this perception of control in your life, or was it something else? It, I, I was looking for for something to kind of hold on to, to kind of take me out of the dumps uh, during my remission, because you know one of the things as well is you know when you go into chemotherapy, you're amped up on steroids, so going through that year of chemotherapy, I, I mean, I probably slept like an average of three hours a night. And I kind of did manage to read, you know, 20 books that year and uh, kept a journal and, and whatnot. But, you know, after a while that, you know, that routine gets really mundane and you become disinterested. Um, and then also the, the portocaster that was in my chest, um, you know, we had to, to wait a few months after treatment um, to make sure that my scans were clear before they, they were going to remove that. So there was, there was a, Part of me as well that wanted to really get active again and play basketball, but you can't really get active because if you get knocked in the chest, you know, you go in your lung and stuff like that. So there was a lot of, um, you know, kind of let the lion out of his cage, but I really, I really couldn't. And just like the whole time delay, it just, it just kind of put me into like a, this, this downward spiral. And, uh, but yeah, in, endurance sports, um, if the thing that's so great about endurance sports is there's a, uh, just a great sense of community, you know, people are there supporting each other. And, um, I mean, the, the, actually the, my impetus moment came in, uh, a, almost a year after my last treatment. And when I was an honor patient for the team and training for the leukemia and lymphoma society, I was one of the honor patients and the cycling coach at the time had invited me to, to go to the, uh, the pasta dinner the night before up in Tahoe the night before the ride. And he let me, borrow a bike from a shop and uh never my whole life that i had ever have a desire to ride 100 miles and uh the perimeter of lake tahoe is 72 miles so the way the ride starts out is is you know okay so what's the what's the worst thing that could happen for today you know and i you know i, I go out and i ride maybe 25 miles go back to my hotel room call it a day it's just another ordinary day so for me it was something, an opportunity for to kind of break up my, my normal routine. But what actually happened was just completely changed my life. Um, I started telling myself, well, actually, first of all, when you start out, you start the ride at South Shore Lake Tahoe, and you get to the first uh, 
check checkpoint, which is about uh, 10 miles into the ride at Emerald Bay. And just watching the sunrise that morning and with all these people around you, just, it was just like, this, this is special. You know, this is going to, you know, this, you know, something good is going to come out of this. So I decided I'm going to keep going. The next stop was, uh, was Homewood, which is 25 miles into the ride. So I'm just thinking to myself, well, you know, if I ride back from Homewood, I'm riding a total of 50 miles for the out and back. But if I ride around the entire lake, it's actually 72 miles. So it's like, yeah, what the heck? So um, I meet back up with Dan Brown during this bike ride, and he's kind of coaching me throughout the ride. We're chit-chatting, and next thing you know, we're at Kings Beach. So we're kind of at the, you know, more than halfway point at the point of no return. And I kind of decided that, yeah, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish this ride, not really knowing what was actually going to happen. I just knew that it was something I can be proud of something that I had accomplished, but, uh, the ride got harder and harder and my whole body was just, just didn't really have much left. But, uh, you know, we took our breaks and everything and it just kind of got to the point where I was so mentally exhausted that, um, I just wanted to get the ride over with just, just so I can stop. But then once I realized, cause when you go around Sand Harbor, you know, growing up in the Lake Tahoe area, um, you know, you'll know like the tennis courts right before you get to, to downtown. And I always knew about those tennis courts when I was, uh, you know, when I was a kid going up Tahoe because I knew if I saw the tennis courts were, you know, just around the corner from downtown. So that's kind of when the, the rapture started to happen. I saw downtown and uh, I just, I crossed the finish line and I was just, just bawling in tears. And, and uh, one of the books that I read during my year of chemo was uh, Lance Armstrong's Lance Armstrong's book. Uh, it's not about the bike. And when he finishes his first tour, tour, he says to the media, "You know, if you ever have a second chance at anything in life, you have to you have to go all the way." So that's kind of what I like. I knew right then and there that um, I was going to be a part of the team, the team in training. I was going to be. I was going to raise all the money that I needed to do, and I was going to ride the full 100 miles the next year. That, so that was that was going to be all the way for me, and I just that was really the turning point because when you're going through that recovery process, um, you have to have like I think like goal setting is extremely important. You have to have you have to set a goal and you have to put a you have to put a timeline on it. You can't you can't kind of let things slide by and you know fortunately in this situation you know I knew exactly when the ride was so I had this opportunity to to train for the ride with with the team and uh yeah I mean that, that's kind of well, I, I would say that's the story of my life right there that's what what the day that changed everything and then uh from then on it's just I, I really wanted to get back and and that and that was another thing as well is um when I got done with chemo, there was no support networks because you you know you hear about like especially back then it's like you hear about people getting cancer and it's like kids you know little kids fighting leukemia or you know people in their fifties or sixties fighting colon cancer or lung cancer and that's kind of what we're in this the way the system kind of kind of works is that that's kind of the impression that everybody gets but here I was twenty three twenty four years old and there's no network whatsoever for young adult survivors and it wasn't until about 2007 that another organization started to create this uh, i actually didn't find out about it until like 
2011 or 2012. But, um, um, but just like having that, I mean, community is just, is this huge in, in survivorship. I can't, I can't express how important that is. Well, and I, I think that's, um, we, we talk about that quite often for all sorts of different aspects of health, but it isn't just survivorship. If you look at people who have heart disease, if you look at chronic medical conditions, having a sense of community is a major driver of health. And it's really having a supportive peer group around you, having people that believe and support you. Uh, I like to say it's if, when you're weak, they're strong. And when they're weak or they're weak, you're strong. And it's, and it's be able to, you know, support each other. Um, there is a strength that the giver gains when you provide for someone else and you can help somebody. You not only learn about yourself more, but you're, you're, as you provide that guidance to somebody else. And, you know, this is an interesting point because we don't think about that when, when people are younger. And there's a lot of young people out there that we, you know, younger people in general think that they are invincible. You know, younger people in general, we, the society generally views them as very healthy. You're, you're, you're spot on. We, we have these things for young, younger children, but there is that, that age group in the middle there. And I could see where if you're going through this type of experience, which is so out and beyond what anyone else in your peer group at that time was likely going through, you don't have anybody to communicate with. You may say something, but that they, they don't understand the trials that when you're talking about porticaths or, uh, you know, removing part of your, your skull and having that, that taking out so that there was too much pressure. People kind of say, yeah, 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 but they don't have that intimate understanding anymore. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just interesting. So what, what have you done along that, that road now? That, that support group, what have you done to change that or to surround yourself with or, make a difference in? Well, I mean, I, I was with the team in training for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society for, let's see, 2008 through, or two, I'm sorry, 2002 through 2008. Um, you know, I was, I was actively involved in their fundraising programs, and I was off, often asked to speak um, during the time when we were recruiting people, so I would share my, you know, what I had gone through, and then, you know, I, I talk about my story around Lake Tahoe to get People kind of excited about it, um, and I, you know that that's kind of my way of, of giving back. And you know, since from 2002 to 2008, you know, with all my involvement, and I eventually coached the team in training. You know, I was able to raise 125 thousand dollars, you know, for the organization. Um, and then I kind of took a break in 2009, and then. Uh, uh, a, a good friend of mine in the sports industry really inspired me that year when I found out that he was the first person with uh, cerebral palsy to ever summon Mount Kilimanjaro. And we had been friends, but I didn't really like know his story. And uh, I got to thinking once I heard about his story, it's like, you know, my, my 10th year of remission is going to be in 2010. What am I going to do to celebrate my 10th year of remission? So I had been involved. I've done like several triathlons. I've ridden thousands of miles on the bike and actually ran a marathon. And I just decided, okay, well, I am going to, I'm going to do an Ironman triathlon to celebrate my 10th year of remission from brain cancer, which is 140.6 miles, 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, 26.2 mile marathon. And I decided I'm going to commit to this and I'm going to find a cause that I can raise $10,000 for to represent my decade milestone of being cancer-free. 
So I started thinking, God, am I going to, should I raise money for Livestrong? Should I, you know, what am I going to do? So a handful of uh, colleagues and I got together for lunch one day and someone mentioned, you know, why don't you, you start a scholarship fund? So we all agreed, okay, that's what we're going to do. So I already had the name My Hometown Heroes because I knew that I wanted to start something and I wanted to, the name My Hometown Heroes actually comes from everybody that was there during my whole medical or, ordeal. This kind of goes back to ties back into the community. But, you know, they were my heroes. You know, them being there for me um, was what really kind of motivated me. And um, it's like I felt like everything that I had did done from that point forward for my survivorship had a purpose. And it was because I, I didn't want to let them down, you know, it's because when you, when you feel that, that love from the community, it just, it just gives you so much hope. And, um, you know, so that's why I named my foundation, my hometown heroes, a scholarship fund for young adult cancer survivors. Um, so that's, that's my, that's kind of my, my MO right now. And I, I finally decided, um, that, well, 2010 was the year that you know, I started the foundation and raised $10,000. I've actually expanded the mission that by the year 2020, we want to actually give away $1 million in scholarships to the young adult survivor population. So that's that's what we're working towards right now. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, now this is, we're, we're, I don't want to t spend too, too much of your time here. I appreciate having you on. But if you could go back in time all right, you know, and I'm just going to kind of touch back on a couple things here. The the diagnosis, the challenges after the surgeries, the chemotherapy, the you know the bike ride that really seems sort of a defining bike ride around Lake Tahoe. You know that first one. It almost sounds like your cancer story in a lot of ways, where you're struggling and get to a point where you're absolutely exhausted, then you kind of crest that last little hill where the tennis courts were. But if you could go back in time, and go to young Danny and you could immediately wipe out any history of, of cancer with him, this lymphoma that he had, but you would lose everything that you've learned thus far. Would you go back and do it? You know, um, from what I experienced, even despite how difficult it was and, uh, to where I am right now, I don't think I would change a thing. Uh, are, are you asking me like what advice I would give? No, that, first I just wanted to know whether you would go back in time and change it because there's an important concept there is we all suffer through adversity. There are bad things that happen to us all the time. Some of them are way worse than others. But doing these periods of time, we have a tendency to learn some of the most profound life lessons that we will ever learn and provide lessons that we can teach others that people – Maybe we can give support through them. And what I, I, I was wanted to kind of call attention to is you're not the first person I've talked to about this. It's not, you know, no one is saying, and I'm not saying you probably want to go back and experience that again, nor would you ever wish cancer on anybody to occur. But these experiences that we have, we can build such a profound amount of strength from them and learn to appreciate what they gave us that we don't want them removed anymore. You know, and I, I guess that... Uh, I just want people to be aware of that because I see that sometimes where people have something happen and they get into this why me stage. Why me, why me, why me? And they never seem to progress. 
instead of going, you know, what can I learn from this? What can I take from the situation? Or even recognizing the profound lessons that they've learned during those really, really tough and hard times. So going into that, I guess, what would you tell young Danny if you, if, if you caught him when he was, you know, just had this diagnosis and you, or I, I can't even say that because like you said, the first diagnosis, you were probably shell-shocked. You really didn't understand it. But let's go back to that encounter with your oncologist in Reno when you came back from what was the definitive surgery, and you said, yes, you have cancer, you know, kind of reaffirming what you were kind of blocking out. Um, this is what the five-year survival rate is and things like that. I'm imagining that was probably one of the lower times there. What would you go back to tell him? What would you tell young Danny? Well, you know, some things are completely out of, out of our control. And I think we have to accept things the way they are um, and, and, and deal with them. Because you, at that point, you have a choice. You know, you can either deal with the problem or it can deal with you. So there kind of there has to be a point of where you have to realize, um, you know, you have to live, you have to live in the moment day by day and appreciate what you have. And one of the things I often um, ponder, like if I was to write a book or if I was to give a speech or something, if I found out I had one year to live, like if someone just told me like right now that you're gonna die 365 days from now. You know, what would you do? I think a lot of people would change their perspective on life. They would find out what's truly important to them. Uh, and I think, you know, like going through going through cancer and chemotherapy and, you know, you know, my, my circumstances, my own personal experiences, um, you know, my whole my whole uh, uh, drive and going to college was. Well, I think a lot of people don't really know what they want to be when they grow up, even when they graduate college. I just just various friends that they always like to make the claim that I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up and they're, you know, they're 30 or 40 years old. But, um, but it really, it really uh, puts things in perspective because I, I wanted to be an electrical engineer and I figured, well, I figure out if I'm going to be working the rest of my life anyways, I might as well be making a good money to where I can afford to do the things that I want to do. But, you know, it, as you learn, you know, go through life, I mean, having a, a good income is great because you can afford that lifestyle. But if, if you're in a position to where you make a lot of money and you're not happy, then, then what's the point anyway? You know, so it's like, you know, would you rather live a life of mediocrity, a lifetime of mediocrity, or would you rather have that one year where you live in excellence? That's, that was kind of like the philosophy that was going through my head, you know, during my time of, of chemo. So it's, um, because you, you know, if you know, asteroid. If an asteroid hits, you know, the Earth tomorrow, everything that you've ever worried about means nothing. And what it all comes down to is the people that you love and the people that love you. And uh, you know, because when I when I was in the, uh, and like I said earlier, it's just you know, when I was I was so humbled by everybody who came to the hospital for me, like nothing else mattered. It's like you really realize that all you really have in life is your, your friends and your family, like your possessions and who cares about, you know, what accomplishments you've had as long as you have your your uh I mean, you know, accomplishments are, are great, you know, to help you advance your life, but um, you know, when it when it comes down, you know, to life and death, you know, you really have to 
put things in perspective because without my friends and family, I, I certainly wouldn't be where I'm at today. And uh, that's what you really have to have to embrace. And it's, you know, you'll, you'll be surprised at how many people will, will be there for you. And, and it's like, uh, you know, the unconditional response of being there can mean the world, even though, you know, they can, they can try to emphasize with you, but, you know, you, you don't forget those people who were there for you, even if they just showed up to say hi. Um, so I, I, I just, I just think if you, if you like put like the ultimatum on someone, <laughs> you know, it's like, um, if you did have one year to live your life, if you know you're going to die tomorrow, what, how would you spend your last days? Um, it's a, it's a great statement and it's, it's definitely something to think about every day. You know, what I was thinking when you were saying that is we don't think about that enough. And there, there is a societal drive about having the good job and, and you know, that, that standard thing. Well, if I make enough money that I can have the life I that, – that, or I can have the lifestyle I want or I'll have the money to do the things I want. But that doesn't take in, you know, opportunity costs. Or most importantly, what you are using – if you're doing something that you hate every day or if you're living in an environment and that you can't stand – if you are unsatisfied, if you're not doing, you know, you're not invigorated by what you're doing, the payment for that, the, the currency that you're using to pay that is time. And time is the most precious thing that we have. And, um, you know, I think if people listen to what you said, if you, if you wake up every day and say, if I only had one year to live, is this how I want to spend my life? I think there would be a lot of changes in many, many people's lives. So. All right, Danny, I don't you we've been here for 37 minutes. I could probably talk to you for another hour or two and hopefully I will get you back on again. You know, thank you so much for the story. Thank you for for the inspiration that you provided. Uh, I'm going to make sure that I link up in the show notes to my hometown heroes. What uh, Danny didn't tell you is that he also has a book about his experience as well. What's your name of your book, Danny? Uh, the name of the book is called For a Reason. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> Um, and I, you know, I kind of talk about in the book about, uh, you know, you, despite the work circumstances, you know, you always hear that piece, people say that, you know, well, things happen for a reason. And then, you know, look, looking back, as long as you, uh, you know, as long as you're kind of contributing back to the universe and, and everything, you know, it'll give back to you. And, uh, I, I found that, you know, to where I'm in my life, you know, things happened for a reason, uh, despite how trying they were. Excellent. So that book, again, is for a reason. Again, Danny's foundation is My Hometown Heroes with the wonderful goal of trying to raise $1 million. When am I saying trying? That will raise $1 million in scholarship funds for young cancer survivors. Uh, Danny, where can people find you if uh, they're out looking on the interwebs for you? Well, my, my current Danny Heinsohn website is going to be rebranded. You, you can actually order my book from there but um the best place to probably get a hold of me is through my foundation website my um www.myhometownheroes.org just send in just send an email uh request there and i'll i'll get back to you um you know within a reasonable amount of time fantastic fantastic okay well this was another fantastic episode i i'm telling you i say that every week and every week i mean it so much good stuff in here you know, again, thank you, Danny, for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, until next time, everybody, stay well.